We want to welcome all that are here today at the Landmark Baptist Mission. Those that will be listening on sermon audio, we want to welcome all. Pray for us as we are seeking the Lord's will and becoming a church. And um, we will uh, seek His will and His guidance. Want to become a local church. Pray that God will send people to us. But Jesus said, where there's two or three gathered together, there am I in the midst of thee. And he's talking about a church can get down to two or three members and be a legitimate church. So we need to pray for that. We want to welcome all that are here. Pray that you'll be able to join in on Sundays at 3 p.m. to the radio station at WYRN 1480AM.com. You can listen to it on the internet. All right, in Genesis chapter 14, we're preaching and we're continuing the series of messages on Christ in Genesis. And we're now getting to the place where Abraham, we got there last week where Abraham is now in the picture here. Now when we get on later into Genesis, we'll see where Abraham's a type of God the Father. And we'll see where Isaac is a type of Christ and Abraham's servant is a type of the Holy Spirit. We're not there yet. But Abraham the warrior, a type of Christ. Now I'm not going to read... out of Genesis 14, all the verses. Uh, But I do want you to take note in verse 12 and in verse 14 and verse 16. It says, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. Pay attention to that. Abram's brother's son was taken captive. He, uh, and when Abram heard that his brother, or excuse me, verse 12, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now look at verse 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. Now in verse 12 it said, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. But it changes in verse 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken. Nahor, the, son, the father of Lot, was not taken God has done called Abram to leave the family. And Lot came with him. But here Lot is called Abram's brother. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house. 318 and pursued them unto Dan. And then verse 16, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot. Not nephew, his brother. Lot was not Abraham's brother. Is there a contradiction in the scriptures? No. The scriptures will sometimes take a son and speak of the son as if he's the father. In other words, it's doing it right here. It it doesn't say Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot is being called Abram or Abraham's brother. And And brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So this is where that I got that Abraham is here a type of Christ. Now we'll get to that here just in a minute. In uh, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 verse 1 through 3, Abraham received a promise from God and that all nations would be blessed through him. Now you have to know about the promised child before you can see what's being said there in Genesis 12 verse 2. When it says, all nations shall be blessed of uh, thee. I'm going to turn over real quick and read that covenant. I've got it clipped off here. It says, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. 
And he says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In verse 3 of Genesis uh, 12. That right there. Now, if you don't know anything about the promised child in the, later on in the chapters, you're not going to see it in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. But God, later on in uh, around chapter 17, tells Abram that he's going to give him a son of his own loins. I believe he does it in 15 too. This, in order for Abraham to be a blessing to all nations, he has to have one come from his own loins, which at this time he is childless and 75 years of age. And so in order for him to be a blessing to all nations, something's got to, someone's got to come from him that's going to be used of God to be a blessing to all nations. Now, as I said, Abraham was 75 years old. He was one year older than Ted back there when he received this promise. And this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant that you read about in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, and you've heard me preach about, is backed up. Is backed up by the promise of the coming Messiah that God the Father preached to Adam and Eve about in Genesis 3, verse 15. So here, we're, Genesis 3, verse 15, is the first gospel message ever preached, and it's through that one that's coming that all nations will be blessed. So are you putting it together now? Christ, if you take Genesis 3, 15 and Genesis 12, you're going to see where that the first promise the first gospel message is the promise of the coming Messiah. And then God says, I'm going to give you a son. And both of these sons were born in a miraculous way. The second one more miraculous than the first. But nonetheless, the first one, Isaac, was born in a miraculous way. Now, in Genesis 16, Sarah, and I, this is not a put down on women, but we're all impatient, but our little lady sometimes might get a little more impatient than a lot of men quicker. But Sarah, and she was doing it, and rightly so. I mean, I ain't going to say rightly, but I, understandably so. We can see why she's become a little impatient because if you look at Genesis 16, verse 16, remember now, Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when the covenant was made with him. Listen to Genesis 16, verse 16. And Abram was fourscore. So take 24 times score 20. That's 80. 80 and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. What does this get at? 11 years has went by since God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. 11 years has went by. And so it's only natural as time goes on and you don't see things changing and you know God gave you a promise that you begin to doubt. Or you might go to the other end and try to help. You've heard of self-prophecies becoming fulfilled. You know, you can think something up until you'll work things around to where things will happen the way you predicted they would. Uh, well, she has become impatient. And so here is what... It says in 16 verse 1, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Now here we go. 
Sarah said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. What is the terrible sin that Sarah is doing here? She is interfering with the lineage of Christ. She did not understand this. I'm sure she did not understand this. She knew that she was supposed to have a baby, but she's now beginning to doubt God and says, I, I want my Egyptian handmaid to be my surrogate mother. I want her to bear my child. That goes on today. Women that can't have children, they will have children through uh, another woman. They'll take the seed of the man and put it in the woman, and she'll have a baby for the woman. But Sarah didn't understand the gravity of what she was doing. She was interfering with the divine will of God. And she paid for it. And the whole world's paid for it. So Sarah tells Abram, and he, instead of saying, Now Sarah, this is not right. Just like, Eve should, just like Adam should have said to Eve, Eve, walk away from this tempter. Walk away. Do not eat that fruit. Do not give it to me. He did not do that. He listened. He hearkened to his wife there. Plunged the whole human race on the road to hell. Abraham hearkened to his wife. Now, let me say this before I go any further. Brenda gives me a lot of advice and probably, I want to say 99.9% of the time she's right. She'll probably bump it up to 99.15, of the time she's right, which leaves just one-tenth for being human, but she's right. But there's one time every 10 or 15 years she might be off a little bit. But uh, the, our women are pretty much right on a lot of things. And uh, the men would do wise. They would be wise to listen and take their advice into account. But Sarah's sin has not brought turmoil in verse 6, because in verse 4 and 5, because now when... Hagar conceived, she began to look down upon her mistress, or Sarah, who was her uh, master, uh, master and And so Sarah, after she sees how Hagar's treating her, she does something that a lot of women do today. She blames her husband. In verse 5, Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. In other words, it's your fault. You shouldn't have done what I said. <laughs> Man, Abraham's in a catch-22. Any way he turns, he's dead in the water with this woman. He said, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maiden to thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despising her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. She's even going so far as to say, You tell me. I, I'm calling on the Lord to show who's wrong, me or you. Now, Abraham shows his weakness in verse 6. Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Now, he, he, sh he shouldn't have done this. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. He should have been a man at least this time and said, All right, look, this was your idea. You started this. Here's what we've got to do. And he needed to go to Hagar. He sat on both down and say, Listen, this is what we're going to do. He didn't do that. Same situation that Samuel's dad was in when he had his two wives. And Penina was uh, 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 looking down and treating Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother, terribly. 
and you can read the tension there between the two and you just have to think that uh, Samuel's dad can't bring his name to my memory right now it just left me but I'm sure he had to go take a camel ride more than one time at midnight to get out of the tent because there was tension between the women here and the same thing was happening with Abraham and so Abraham lets her run let Sarah run Hagar off and then God uh, sees Hagar in verse 8 and 9 and on through the rest of the chapter, he tells Hagar, go back, submit yourself to Sarah because she is, he didn't tell her, what he was saying was, Sarah is the one that's in the covenant, not you. That's why that Ishmael is not considered the, I ain't going to say legitimate son because he is. Some preachers say Ishmael was not the legitimate son. He was not the legitimate son for the covenant. Sarah was trying to help God bring about the Abrahamic covenant. So in that sense, Ishmael was illegitimate as a covenant child, but he was a legitimate son of Abraham. And that's why those Arabs to this day say we have Abraham as our father. What Sarah done has produced a war that is now 4,200 years old. All that skirmishing and fighting you've seen in the Middle East is the result of Sarah trying to help God. It tells you there that when she saw uh, Ishmael uh, mocking and sporting with Isaac, she said, get this bondwoman out of here. And the second time she ran her off, uh, God told Hagar, your son, and he tells her here that he's going to be a, a father of an exceeding number of people in verse 10. And if you go to Genesis 25, uh, you'll read, uh, start around verse 12 through 18, you'll read of the 12 sons of Ishmael, which are the, the 12 Arabian nations. Uh, all those settled around Saudi Arabia and down around that area, his sons. And so God uh, did bless Ishmael, but Ishmael's not the covenant child. Ishmael is not in the lineage of Christ. The promised child, Isaac, was to be uh, in the lineage and is in the lineage. Now, it, the scriptures that I read you at the opening where Abraham had to go get men and go save Lot. God uses a war to turn Abraham into a warrior. Now, over there in chapter... You don't have to read this, but in chapter 13, verse 14 through 18, God, Abraham and God are communing as Abraham's walking through the promised land. And God told him in verse 15, he said, For all the land, in chapter 13, verse 15, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. There's another scripture for the promised child. He's told Isaac, you're going to have children. Isaac and Sarah did not have any children at this time. Abraham was 100 years old when the promised child was born. 25 years after the covenant was made was the promised child born. And so it tells you there in verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared unto him, uh, the Almighty, and said, Walk before me. And be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee. And this is when he changes Abram's name in verse 5 to Abraham and Sarah's name uh, in verse 15 to Sarah. And 
Sarah is 90 years old at that time. Abraham's 99. So she's nine years younger. And so when Abraham was a century old, he had the promised child. What is this teaching us? We need to have patience just because we pray and pray and pray and things don't happen. Just remember, 25 years went by before God gave Abraham the promised child. After he gave him the promise. Now this war turned Abraham from a peaceful man to a warrior. We Christians don't need to be afraid of fighting. Now, I'm not saying go around picking fist fights, but the greatest warriors that ever lived on this earth were God's people. And if you look at back in the days of the Revolutionary War, uh, there was an old saying back then, might have even been around when uh, Tab was a young man. I don't know if you ever heard this, but you, there was a phrase, give them what's, boys. I don't know, you ever hear that, Ted, when you was growing up? That, that's an old revolutionary saying. There was a, a battle during the Revolutionary War, and the men had run out of paper for the flint rock, rock rifles. He said, go into the church, the pastor did, go into the church and get the Watts Heminals and use the paper to light the flint rocks. And that's where the saying, and then he said, give them what's, boys. Give them what's. Give them those gospel hymns. Let, let, let the rifles fire from the paper from the gospel hymns. So that's what they're saying, give them what's. That's where it came from was the Revolutionary War. And so the Revolutionary, what fired up the, the forefathers for the Revolutionary War? It was the preaching that was done by the Protestant preachers that were preaching. A lot of the Protestant preachers, I'm not saying they were God's preachers as far as him giving them authority, but they held preaching position. They were highly intelligent men. And they were consumed with preaching about freedom. And that's what lit the fires in the forefathers, what we know as the forefathers, to get them fired up to take the nation so far as the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and then when the war was over in 1787, the Constitutional Convention. And so all that came from the preaching of the preachers of that era, day and time. And so God's people have always been involved in justifiable wars. God even justifies. God even says there's wars that are justified. He tells you in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to kill and a time to let live. Time for war and a time for peace. We just need to make sure that the war is the right war. And before we kill, we need to make sure we've exhausted every step before we have to kill. Now, sometimes in self-defense, you have just enough time to get your gun and shoot. Okay, that's, that's not murder in God's eyes. Self-defense. There's three reasons for war that God uh, allows, and that is capital punishment. You read about that in Genesis. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, uh, his blood shall be shed. It's in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Self-defense. Any man that provideth not for his own is worse than an infidel. That don't just mean work. I believe it's in Timothy. That don't mean just providing food and uh, protection, uh, or food and a home for your family. I believe it means providing protection. If you see someone harming your wife, you need to be ready to shoot them. Kill them if you have to. If they're going to harm or kill any of your family, you, you, you stop it, especially if, uh, as a man. Don't mess with mama. You've heard that saying, don't mess with the grizzly mama. Because mamas, I was watching a nature show the other day. It might have been Saturday. Big old male grizzly. You know, they're notorious for killing cubs. So they can have, they can breed and have their own cubs. 
Son, mama wasn't going to have no part of it. Here she is, hundreds of pounds less, but the old male just decided it wasn't, because she was going to fight till death. He wasn't prepared to fight for it, so he ran off. So don't mess with mama unless you're ready to die. That go, that's in the nature world as, as well, because that male grizzly could have killed that mama grizzly, but he just didn't want to have to go through all he did to do it, so he just ran off. So, and then capital punishment. Capital punishment, self and war. War. I've already said capital punishment. The greatest exhibition of capital punishment is Calvary. All of God's elect, all, the whole human race committed a capital offense against God. And to save us from God carrying out his capital uh, punishment upon us in hell. Now, there's a stage, there's a part of capital punishment we still have to experience. Those that's been ordained to die. The reason why people die is because they committed a capital offense against God. Those that are not of the elect will suffer the fullness of the capital punishment in hell. So we still, no matter how much we're loved of the Lord, we still have to die because we as individuals through Adam committed a capital offense against God when we through Adam ate the fruit. That's why we're growing older, that's why we get sick, and that's why we die. Is because we committed a capital offense against God. Now, when Abraham was walking through this promised land, there was no mention of a war anywhere. He was having sweet fellowship with the Father. Here's where he's a type of Christ. In John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 17, 5, it says, and and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. There was no war. God the Son was in complete harmony, complete peace and happiness with the other two of the Trinity before the world ever began. And, and so we see here that he, there was no war in heaven except for the war where we're going to get to here in just a minute where Satan uh, try to do a coup attempt, but that was Satan trying to do this against God. This was not any one of the Blessed Trinity doing this because that's an impossibility. The Blessed Trinity is in complete peace and harmony, just like Abraham was in complete peace and harmony with God as he walked through the promised land. Now, it tells you there in verse, uh, in verse 3 of Genesis 16, let me get her over there, uh, that uh, Abraham was... In the plains of Mamre, and this is when that's where the Lord also appeared to him before he went into Sodom and Gomorrah. Mamre is over in Hebron, which is west of the Dead Sea, about halfway down on the Dead Sea. Now, this war, as I said, took place. What has happened in chapter 14, uh, in the first few verses, you read where that a league of kings. There was two group of kings in a confederacy with each other, and they uh, had come down. The kings, in verse 1, had made war with Berea, in verse 2, of king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah. That's where Lot went. That's where Lot went. And then when the kings, in verse 1, overtook the kings, in verse 2, and that includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they took Lot. And so Abraham did something for the first time it's recorded in the scriptures. He formed 
the first militia. Militias are scriptural. Listen to what it says here in verse 14 and 15. And when Abram heard that his brother, Genesis 14, verse 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. Born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto death. Here's a man with 318 soldiers going after a confederacy of kings that had a whole lot more people. Abraham was fearless. He did not take his own life into consideration. He was going after one thing, his brother. Are you seeing the picture here where he's a type of Christ? And it says in verse 15, he divided himself against them and he and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also with the people. Militias are not only scriptural, militias here in this country are both scriptural and constitutional. Listen to the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So we've got two things on our side as Christians and as Americans. For those that are not Christians, we can let those that are not Christians know that the Bible supports a militia. And secondly, so does the Constitution. And that's why they're trying to do away with your guns, is to do away with militias. Therefore, no threat from the people. Do you know that it is our constitutional right and obligation to protect this country from tyrannical politicians? God's going to have to move the hearts of the people to get ready to do this because our constitution says we the people are supposed to protect the constitution. And do away with the tyrannicals. Now, you listen to the media. Once this all gets started, if the if God removes His restraining hand and the militias get started, you're going to hear things like right wing terrorist groups. They're going to make the militias look absolutely terrible. But we, as a people, constitutionally and biblically and constitutionally, have the right to protect this nation. That's why that. President Trump spoke so often, they're going to take away your Second Amendment. What he meant by that was they're going to take away your rights to defend the nation. And so we need to be praying about that. As Abraham rescued his brother, Lot, or his nephew, so will Jesus rescue his brethren. And that includes his sisters. In Matthew 12, verse 48 through 50, you can... You can turn there if you want, or you can just write it down. The question, Jesus, they came to Jesus, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus looked at him and said, They that do the will of my Father are my brothers and my sisters. Let me, well, since Brother Ted's turned over, let me just get over real quick and read that. Then, in verse 47 of Matthew 12, Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto them that told him, Who is my mother 
and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. So we are the spiritual family. And you read about that in Ephesians 3 verse 15 about the family of God. A lot of preachers today if you listen to them on the radio, they'll, they'll talk about the rapture of the church. And what they do is they get the word church mixed up with family. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means a local assembly. So when a preacher says the rapture of the church, when I take that literally, I'm, I, when I have the opportunity to talk to them, I'll say which church. Is the Lord going to just rapture one church, one ecclesia? Well, you say rapture of the churches then. Well, that just means the Lord's local ecclesias. There's millions of saints that are not in the Lord's ecclesias. They're going in the rapture too. So when I talk about the rapture, I'm talking about the rapture of the family of God, which includes the Lord's bride or churches. That's the way I word it. Because both groups are going. When you mention the family of God, that includes everything. But I like to mention the rapture of the family and of the Lord's ecclesias, the Lord's churches. Because it's going to be out of the family, the Lord will get his bride. Just like when I married Brenda. I did not marry her family. I married Brenda. I chose her out of that family. I look at some of these families that's on TV. It's got 18 kids and 19 kids. You want to talk about picking one out of the family, that's picking one out of the family. Some of those families, some of the family have like six or seven girls. And so that man could say, when I picked my wife, I chose her from her other eight sisters that she has. That was 13, 16 people in my dad's family. Of course, two sets of twins died. My dad's first cousin was the baby of 21. So when I married Brenda, I chose her. I didn't marry her dad. I didn't marry anybody else except her. And that shows a great truth that the bride is not the family. And so you can't say the rapture of the church because you're just talking about the rapture of one local ecclesia. All right, so Abraham, Jesus says there that they that do the will of my father are my mother, my brother, my sister, and my mother. But there is a literal, there is a physical family of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, let's take a look at that real quick. Brother Ted was talking to me about this, and he had no idea that I was going to bring this up today. But in Revelation 12, verse 1 and 2, well, all the way down to verse 4, you will see who this woman is in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, verse 1 through 5. Well, verse 4. Well, we'll take it down to 5 because that goes into the millennial reign. See, what throws a lot of people about Revelation 12 as you've turned there. and A lot of people don't understand. This is what I call my time travel chapter. From one punctuation mark to the next, you'll go back 4,000 years, 2,000 years, and by the time you get to the next 
punctuation mark. You've gone into the future 4,000 years from where you was just at before you read that part of the verse. Let me give you an example. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Oh, who, who are the 12 stars? The 12 tribes of Israel. This woman is Israel. No church can lay claim to this description. And she being with child. Okay, look at that. So here God brings Israel to existence. That takes place in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. That's when the nation of Israel begins is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. She being with child. Abraham lived 2,500 years before Christ was born. Did you see that? It went from Israel being coming into existence in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, to 2,500 years after the Abrahamic covenant, and she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Now look at this. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. This is taking us back before Genesis chapter 1. You're talking now about the existence of Satan. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. This is talking about Isaiah 12, 14, verse 12 through 14, when Satan did his coup attempt upon God. This is going back before time began. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Okay, now look at this. Now, and he cast them down to the earth. What do you read in Genesis chapter 6? So now you went from before Genesis 1, verse 1, now you're over in Genesis chapter 6 where the sons of God, the fallen angels, are marrying the daughters of men. And the dragon which stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So now the dragon that was created, I believe, before the, uh, the great work of creation was done, because Satan was already fighting God before Adam ever ate the fruit. So now you went before Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way up to the birth of Christ in that one verse. Did you see that? And he was there to devour the child as soon as it was born. Well, that's Herod in Matthew chapter 2. That's why he killed all the babies two years old and under after the wise men went back home. But because he had calculated from the time that the wise men told him they saw his star until he got there, his wise men told him two years. And so he kills all the babies two years old and under. Verse 5, and she brought forth a man child. That was 2,000 years ago. Listen to this. Who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron? That's the millennial. Did you see how much time? Did you see how we went back and into our future in just that one part of the verse? And her child was caught up into God and to his throne. Now we went from the millennial back to Acts chapter 1 verse 9 through 11 where Christ is at the top of the Mount of Olives and ascends back to the Father's throne. 
Isn't that amazing? So who is this woman? This woman's Israel. She's Israel. And she is the prophetic mother of Jesus. Not Mary. Mary is his physical mother. Israel is the spiritual mother. Because it said she, a woman pain with pain, ready to be delivered. And the, dra the dragon was there to devour her child as soon as it was born. Christ was born in Israel. Now, what is Jesus going to save his people from? Now, there, there's those in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, for the sake of time we won't go there and read, that says God's done with Israel. Brother Ted was telling me about a man he's seen on the television that said that the woman there in chapter 12 was the Lord's churches. If it's not Israel, all millennialists believe that God's done with Israel and all the promises are given to, they say the Lord's church. Again, I say which church? Which ecclesia has received all the promises of Israel? What they mean is the Lord's churches. Which is wrong because God tells us in Romans 11, verse 1 through 5, Paul asked the question in verse 1, Hath God cast away his people Israel forever? And then Paul says, God forbid. In other words, no way. If you read Revelation chapter 12, going down, I think it is verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness. We go from the birth of Christ and Christ's ascension back up to the tribulation period where the Antichrist is going to break the treaty with Israel, Daniel 9 verse 27, and going to turn on Israel, and God is going to hide Israel in the wilderness. He is Israel is the woman that fled to the wilderness in the tribulation period. As Abraham waged war in closing and rescued his brother, so will Jesus <laughs> wage war and rescue his Jewish brothers and sisters, his mother, from the Antichrist. This is going to take place in the valley of Armageddon. In the valley of Megiddo. He told them before he died on the cross in Matthew 23, verse 38 through 39. You will not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, you'll read of the city of Jerusalem, the women being ripped apart, women raped, ravished. And there's going to be Jews cry out in Zechariah 14, verse 2, what Jesus said they would in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38 and 39. When all this is happening in Zechariah 14, verse 2, there'll be Jews look up and say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the next thing you know, God the Father is going to look at his son and say, go. And what do you see? In Revelation 19, verse 11, the heavens open up and Christ is coming back on his white horse with his armies out of heaven. And that includes his resurrected and raptured saints. And where is Christ coming? He's coming down to the Mount of Olives. Israel's going to see this wondrous sight. And they're going to watch him land on the Mount of Olives. Sunday, hightail it up to the mountain there. And when they get up there, they see this one standing because it tells you in that day his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, verse 4. When they get to him, the first thing they're going to see is those holes in his hands, Zechariah 13, verse 6. Where did you get these wounds in your hands? Well, if you look over, if you look, I'm going to close with this. If you look over at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives and see those wounds, 
Here's what's going to happen to them in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the house and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. Now listen to this. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. It says in verse 12, in, in verse 11, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. And it tells you in verse 12, and the land shall mourn, every family apart. And then it tells you verse 13, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives. And verse 14, all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. Why? Because in chapter 13, verse 6, when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And when the Spirit of grace is put upon them, as he gives them the answer in Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will see that they are the ones, as a nation, that put those wounds in the blessed Savior, and they will mourn through uh, God blessing, removing the veil from their eyes that's been there since the day they rejected him. And when he removes the veil from their eyes, they are going to be on top of the Mount of Olives and they are going to see their Messiah. I, would, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to stand on the Mount of Olives where this is going to take place. But until then, I'll just have to get on the internet and look at the pictures. So as Abraham was a warrior that saved his people, Israel, or saved his brother, his kinsmen, from those kings, those Gentile heathen kings. Of course, the Abraham at this time was a Gentile too until he was circumcised. I believe it's in Genesis 15. Jesus Christ is going to come back and wage war at the Valley of Megiddo, destroy the Gentile powers, the armies, and then he's going to set up the judgment of nations, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31 through the end of the chapter. And then when that's done, they're going to go into the millennial where the prophecy in Revelation 12, verse 4, I believe it is, and he shall rule the nations. It might be 4, verse 5, chapter 12. He's going to rule the nations after all of that. After he has saved Israel. Hosea chapter 3, read it when you get home. Israel is the wife of God the Father. God is not done with Israel because that is his own wife that he has got to bring back to himself. He is divorced right now, and he's going to be reconciled to his wife, just like Hosea was reconciled to his wife who had committed adultery against him in chapters 1 through 3. As Hosea brings his wife back to him, God the Father is going to bring his wife back to himself and once he does this, at the top of the Mount of Olives, she's there to stay forever with him. I know the message went a little long, but there's a lot to bring out about Abraham the warrior, a type of Christ. My brother Ted's given me a recommendation to preach on the rapture, or a request, so I'm going to, Lord willing, I will try and prepare that message, and then we'll get right back to Christ in Genesis. But next Sunday, Lord well, I'm going to be preaching on the rapture and the last trumpet. So with all this being said, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, as I come for your throne, I praise thee for giving me a hungering and thirsting for your word. And I, 
all the saints that hunger and thirst for thee and want to study your word, uh, we give you all the praise, honor, and glory for those that don't hunger and thirst. We pray that you'll put it in their heart to do so, that they may read and see what's happening and be comforted by thee through the scriptures. Help us to be looking for our saviors any moment return. We ask these things in Jesus' wonderful, precious, and holy name. And amen.